Hello, and welcome to the Objective Health Show. I am your host today, Erica, and joining me is Doug, Elliot, and Damien in the background. Welcome, all. Hello. 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 So today we're going to talk about the fascinating world of fascia. And for those that are new to this concept, fascia is called many things. Sometimes it's called the cobweb of the body, um, the connective tissue, the liquid crystalline matrix. But just to get started, just to give you an idea of what this connective tissue is, it is accounting for about 20% of your body mass. So a lot of times it's referred to as like the sweater of the body. And fascia stores and moves water and it carries uh, voltage like electric wiring. It also has semiconductive properties. Um, it's located directly beneath your skin and deep fascia surrounds all your muscles and organs, even the brain. It's also made up of fibroblasts or cells that produce collagen and other fibers. And it's highly integrated with the nervous system. So I hope we can delve into this. We've got some video clips to share some of the amazing pictures and the research that's done. And it's a kind of a new science, like uh, as you'll see in the video that we'll show here in a moment by Thomas Myers. He's a producer of a website called Anatomy Trains and uh, hope it shines some light. What do you guys think? Do you find the information fascinating? Fascinating fashion. Fascinating. Yeah. It's actually, it's really interesting because it's kind of, um, it, like you said, it's kind of new. Like, it's like they, as long as they've been studying anatomy, human anatomy, it's like they never really clued into this stuff and its importance. Um, despite the fact that it was always there, you know, the early people who were like cataloging anatomy were like kind of scraping away the fascia to kind of get at the muscles because they thought that that was the, the most important thing. But... Um, more recent research has kind of really delved into how important this all this connective tissue is and yeah i think that there's kind of a new appreciation for it and how much it actually does and how necessary it actually is yeah and and originally with with the kind of anatomical study when like a medical student if they were to go into a laboratory and look at a cadaver and and as you said it Doug it would be scraping away at this unnecessary like um junk basically they just see it as you know it's useless it's something that the good stuff sits within so it's like the muscle sits within the fascia or the organs sit within the fascia or everything that is important is like embedded within this useless material that they can throw away and if you look at a dead body yeah the fascia does appear to be like this dead useless kind of wiry material because it has no life to it there's no you know it's 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 basically just very brittle it's dry um but, but the problem is is that that is not how fascia is in the human body, in a living system. It differs greatly from, you know, a dead system to a living system. And when it's when that system is alive, say inside the human body or inside an animal or whatever, the collagen plays or the this this connective tissue, this fascial network 
just plays an enormous role in really um, facilitating the function of practically every other organ. So it, rather than the organs sitting within the fascia, it's actually like, sorry, rather than the, the fascia surrounding the organs, it's that the organs are embedded within this one ultimate system. You can think of it like this massive, long, dynamic kind of cobweb network of connections. And this is the way that every single portion of the body is connected to every single other portion at, like, all at the same time. So the, the connection between the heart and the foot, the connection between the um, genitals and the brain, the connection, you know, all of these connections are fundamentally um, facilitated through fascia. And yet we've like researchers and scientists all this time have kind of said, this stuff is unimportant. This stuff we don't really need to care that much about this stuff. It doesn't really play many roles, but actually that is just so wrong. Um, if anything, it's potentially the most important organ mm. because it is that, um, you know, that, that, that common theme in, in the whole body, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like, um, when people often, you know, um, particularly like holistic practitioners and things like that, they'll talk about how, you know, Western science kind of looks at things in a very segmented way and they look at this system and they look at this system, but they don't realize that it's actually an integrated whole, right? That everything is kind of a holistic um, whole um, and that, you know, Western science has kind of made a mistake and kind of uh, segregating everything. Well, it's almost like the fascia is the thing that makes it that whole, that makes it so that you're you're kind of studying it as a complete thing and not these kind of individual um, organ systems um, because the, it, it kind of, you're, you're covered in fascia from head to toe, you know, like Erica said it, it covers all your muscles, all your different organs, your brain, it covers the bones, it's everywhere and it's kind of the, the thing that makes the body act as a whole that makes sense yeah and the, the way that I think listeners can understand exactly what constitutes fascia because it's it you know if you, if you listen to it if you hear the word fascia it can be kind of ambiguous a way to understand it is that it is every single thing that is not inside cells so you have lots of different cells right you have muscle cells you have um you have like heart muscle cells you have immune cells you have blood cells all of these different cells which are kind of clumped together and in, you know forming together to form tissues which are then like embedded within this fascia or extracellular space well that is essentially what fascia is fascia is the um is the space in between is the is the material which lies in between those cells which covers the cells and which connects those cells to other cells and which is like the go between area and it's made up of lots of different proteins. So you have, it's primarily made up of collagen, but you also have other kind of structural proteins. You're on the collagen, you have these little long chains, um, these sugar chains called glycosaminoglycans. You also have 
dotted sulfur molecules, sulfate molecules, and you have them all intertwined as fibers. And if you look at, say, the collagen fibers, which are making up the connective tissue, the collagen fibers are, are long strands of peptides, which are twisted together in triple helixes. Okay, and then they form very regular ordered arrays to form what is being, uh, what is, if you were to look at it under a microscope in a living system, to form what is called a, like a crystalline lattice, or uh, that this is why they refer to it as the liquid crystalline collagen matrix, because it is highly ordered, highly regular, and um, very complex in structure. The thing is, when you look at it, it doesn't look ordered. That's the thing. I mean, you can actually see in the image behind me here. Um, it's it looks like chaotic cobweb kind of thing, but it actually is ordered. It is actually, um, yeah, it's it, it is like you know crystalline in structure, which is very ordered. <laughs> it's described as a fractal as well. Well, if you'd like, we can. Uh show our first video clip to just uh, kind of give our viewers an idea of how fascinating this structure really is. Need to educate our children in how they move, then you could have a look um, here at a dissection of the fascial system. This is a dissection of, of an untreated cadaver by Andrzej Pilat in um, Spain. And uh, that's why you get the flamenco dancer every once in a while. But he is uh, he's showing you what it really looks like under the skin. And we have had an altered picture of what it's like under the skin by looking in the books. Whatever anatomy you learn in the books, that's great, but there's a whole system of stuff, and it really is stuff, around the muscles, like the skeleton of an orange, and it's that part that we're going to be looking at here. Now, if you were all therapists, I would be starting to talk to you about how you would affect the very deepest level, the endomesium that you can see looking like a honeycomb there. That honeycomb is around each muscle cell. And then you see around the bunches of muscle cells in the middle picture, you can see the paramecium, which is the lubricating fascia inside the muscle. And then on the outside, the kind of ribbon candy that you see down in the lower right is the epimesium, which is the saran wrap, the plastic wrap that goes around all the muscles, which will go into the tendon of that vastus lateralis uh, when it gets down to the bottom. Um, so we could parse out this thing, but the fascial system is a great big unitary net that goes all over your body. It doesn't just hold your muscles. There's fascia around the bones. There's fascia around and in the cartilage. There's fascia around your organs. Let's have a look at it as a system. Here, coming from the end of the uh, 19th century, is a French surgeon's version of seeing the fascial planes in between the muscles by cutting the muscles back and leaving the fascial planes. So this was an early way of looking at it, taking the muscles out of the inner leg of the inner thigh and looking at the fascial sheets that are left. You just don't have an anatomy that really shows this. We're just beginning to get them now. A few people are beginning to publish them. But if I take a piece of the thigh, which you see here, 
um, going down the middle of the thigh. You see the femur in the middle. The skin and the fat have been taken off the outside. So you're seeing the fascia profundus, which is the fascia lata, which is a thin sheet that goes around all the muscles and squeezes in on them. What you haven't seen in 500 years of anatomy, what you haven't seen is what happens if we take the muscle out of that and just leave the fascia. Now you see the fascia as a system. You see the fiber of the body as a wholly separate system that we have never seen. In 500 years of anatomy, we do not have a picture of this system. This is the best I can do, and it's only a piece of the thigh. It's, there is work under, underway now in the plastination lab in Germany uh, to make some representations of this system, but it is a really fairly much a Cinderella of the body systems in that it has been fairly much ignored and we're working with it, of course. Whatever you do with the body, uh, with your own body, you're working with the fascial system. Whatever you do with other bodies, you're working with the fascial system. But could we do it better if we did it consciously? So you can cut it if you layers want. Layers of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your skin. Okay. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting in that it gives kind of, even though it's just the, the bit of the thigh there that they're looking at, you really kind of get uh, an impression of what a network is actually formed there with it um, and how it does kind of interconnect absolutely everything. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. Well, and it's interesting how these, this newly discovered system, as you said, you know, it wasn't studied in anatomy, all the different modalities that can be used to uh, benefit it in so many different ways. So, you know, not just massage or exercise, but just an awareness of your everyday movements and how certain pain can be associated with not necessarily an injury in one part of your body, but like Elliot was saying, from head to toe, all the connections that um, happen. It's, it's really just um, almost like a, a matrix that has intelligence in the body. Yeah, and, and the, the thing that he didn't, he didn't mention on there um, is that it's not only surrounding those cells, but actually you see every single cell has what we call a cytoskeleton. So cytoskeletons are like inside cells. It's basically, this is something that hasn't been very well characterized either. You've got all these different compartments of cells where you perform different jobs, but actually you've got this scaffolding, this internal scaffolding system called um, the cytoskeleton. And this is made up of lots of different kinds of proteins, which are long and windy and things kind of similar to collagen. Um, in, in, in how they're made. And in that, this cytoskeleton is like holding or kind of keeping everything together, so to speak. But then you've got the membrane around the cell and through the membrane, you've got these proteins which are connecting directly to that cytoskeleton. And then those proteins connect directly through these things called integrin proteins connect directly to the external fascia. So actually, this fascia network, this connective tissue, is essentially connecting the inside of every single cell, like every single organelle. 
So you have things like the mitochondria or the nucleus, which is responsible for for the expression of genes. It's, it holds the, the nuclear DNA. The mitochondria responsible for making energy, knowing when to make energy, knowing when not to make energy, knowing when to repair. All of this kind of complex information. And actually, that is directly connected to every other cell via this fascia. So the fascia is not only connecting organs or tissues to tissues, but actually every single cell is connected to every single other cell. And so that kind of, you know, when you look at things like Eastern, uh, Eastern traditional healing methods, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, naturopathy, when they're talking about how the body is a connected whole, that is a, a very physical fact. You know, that's not wishy-washy. That is factual. It's just not being accepted in the wider kind of um, scientific community. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because I know that they've been doing more and more work now in, the, in, in Western um, science. And they were kind of um, skeptical that the fascia you know, wasn't just a local phenomenon, that it did have effects like that. Affecting the fascia at one part of the body would kind of affect the entire system. And I remember seeing a guy who kind of had a, an ultrasound on the back of somebody's leg and they were manipulating the person's foot or ankle, maybe it was. And they were seeing movement in the fascia in the back of the leg. Now, we don't usually think about that, that, you know, if you're moving like your baby finger, that maybe, you know, the finger on your opposite hand, like, you know, everything, all the fascia throughout the entire system is actually being affected by that, at least in a small way. So it kind of really makes you see just from the movement perspective anyway. Um, actually, maybe we should slow down a bit and just say, like, what are all the different things that fascia actually does? Because, I mean, there's obviously, there's the structural um, component of it, right? Where it is kind of like holding um, things in place, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, surrounding the muscles, that sort of thing. And like, you know, structurally keep, kind of keeping it there. But then it also is acting as like a messenger system of some kind, um, where we'll probably get into that a little bit more later on. Um, but it's also an organ of perception as well that it, it, it actually is kind of communicating things from the outside world to the inside, um, much the way kind of the skin is, but it's, it's kind of on a different level with the, um, the, uh, the fascia as well. So are there any other functions that I'm missing? Because this stuff is actually pretty amazing. You're muted, I think, Elliot. <laughs> Sorry, I did that again. I did that last <laughs> week as well. Um, yeah, so it's... Uh, it's it's able to transport um, different materials through the extracellular matrix. So this is actually really interesting, and there's not much research on this, but there's there is some, um, and it's basically talking about how the the dynamics of this extracellular matrix, the composition of it, its level of hydration, etc., is actually having um, an effect on what genes are transcribed in a cell, mm. for instance. So whether a cell is able to upregulate detoxification-related genes to get things out or upregulate things like antioxidants to neutralize 
damage and kind of clear waste, you see this, this extracellular matrix is really a waste clearance system as well. Because if when, when cells get rid of their metabolic toxins, their metabolic waste, that has to go somewhere. And that actually it's theorized that this whole kind of uh, surrounding system is responsible for accepting that and actually guiding it toward where it needs to go. Yeah, because you think you've got cells and cells produce a lot of waste. And if all of those cells were just randomly releasing like toxic junk into the bloodstream and like into the extracellular space, it's like, okay, if, if, if you had some stagnation or something there, then you'd get a major buildup up of toxicity like in that area if you weren't able to clear it out. But that doesn't tend to happen. Uh, did I cut off? No. No, you're still oh, right. there. Yeah, so so that doesn't tend to happen to the extent that it could do anyway. It seems that actually this f- fascial network is is responsible for for taking that stuff and really transporting it away. But then at the same time, it's theorized that this is also responsible for guiding nutrients to cells, potentially cells that are in need as well. And I think this is where it gets absolutely fascinating. And this kind of touches on this innate kind of higher level of intelligence that we really have no understanding of, but which makes intuitive sense. Um, and, it, and it relates to, you know, cells almost releasing, I would suspect, electromagnetic frequencies or whatever, um, some kind of information which is basically saying hey i need these nutrients i need i need waste being taken out i need this type of protein whereas you may have other cells that don't need that and it's like okay so there is a system in your body which kind of intuitively knows how to how each cell what that cell needs in terms of their nutrient requirements, in terms of their detoxification capacity, everything like that. And it has this system to be able to guide nutrients towards cells, guide material towards cells that are in need, but then away from cells that don't need it. Hmm. And that's like a whole nother layer of intelligence that is just absolutely, it fascinates me. I think it's amazing. But I... I think it actually relates to this fascial system. And I think that there is science kind of going on to try to understand how this works. Um, but yeah, it definitely seems to be this kind of transport network. And so when they talk about um, fascia getting sticky or gummy, maybe Elliot, you have some more insight on that. Like is it, it's almost like you hear these days so much about collagen and how you should take supplements, but if you're not moving very much, you're sedentary or you break a limb and you're in a cast, that, that it, the body actually produces more collagen and it makes the fascia very uh, sticky and gummy. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's... it's um... I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think I think there's a couple of theories for why that might happen. Um, there is, you know, the typical idea that when there's a, a, any kind of injury or inflammation, that the body lays down more collagen fibers, and that kind of very mundane explanation. But in terms of um, having, you see, collagen when it is when it's dead, the difference between 
collagen that's dead and collagen that's alive is collagen that has energy running through it. So that's electricity running through it. Okay. Yeah. So in the dead collagen, if you were to open up a cadaver and you look at the collagen, it's brittle. It's rubbery. It's kind of dry. It's dry. It's dehydrated. That's really the definition of it. Dehydrated. What does that mean? It means it's not holding onto or it's not bound with water. Now, the fundamental difference in the human body is that the collagen system, this whole fascial network, which is made up primarily of collagen proteins, by the way, and this whole system is everywhere, every single place in the human body where there is fascia, there is also also adjacent water molecules. And because of the hydrophilic nature of the collagen protein, because of its certain charge, what happens is is it has um, a a, a very close relationship with neighboring water water molecules. And in in those water molecules, when you have, I mean, Gerald Pollock has done a lot of work on this showing that essentially water molecules... um, um, interfacing with uh, a hydrophilic surface such as collagen or the fascial network, by the way, um, when we have that interface, then actually am- am- amazing things can happen in water molecules. You actually get charge separation and we have the water uh, separation of electrons and protons and you have hydronium ions, but essentially what it does is it facilitates or produces what is known as like a battery system which can actually produce biological work. Now, that's just the one aspect of this. But when you have this tightly bound collagen and water system, then actually the the collagen becomes um, what, what they call hydrated. Hydrated basically means that it's bound with lots of water. And so you have these, these like helixes of collagen they call them like uh is tropo collagen kind of um twists you can think of loads of these twists and they're binding all of these this like thick layer of water around the collagen and when that happens there's actually been studies showing that this um electrify or, or this hydrated collagen network actually can then become conductive so it can then go on to conduct um protons okay and the 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 water can conduct electrons um and so you have this whole system whereby um it's 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 uh if you look at the the structure of the of the the collagen and the water uh, it forms what is called like a semiconductor so in in right let me just go back to where I was. Okay. I don't want to go too far off. Right. So just, You're just, doing so, great. just so the listeners understand. Okay. Right. Biological e- electricity. If you study biology, if you look at anatomy and physiology, the form of electricity acknowledged in, in, in the human body is basically, um, is, is related to the flow of charged particles across membranes okay so it's the flow of ions it's like potassium magnesium chloride these are all charged ions okay and when they flow from one area to another area they change the the 
the charge in that area. Okay, they change the electrical environment, and so that is considered to be like the only electrical system in the body. So, in the brain, for instance, they measure action potentials that involves the flow, basically like the transport of these different ions, these charged particles, and that is activating all, all of this electrical electrical activity in the brain. However, this is like only a very small part of the story because electricity in the human body has been known for a very long time, but it's quite difficult to measure. Now, there's a guy called Robert Becker, um, and he discovered in Salamanders that actually there was a very low-level DC, DC electric current, which was essentially being carried through a system that was separate to the nervous system, that was not related to these charged particles, the flow of ions. It's a completely different system. And this is the case with human beings. It's the case with all living beings, is that actually you have this very low-level electrical network, which really hasn't been acknowledged or studied very much. But essentially, the only really viable kind of... Um, possibility is that it is it has to do with this fascial system this fascial network and it's no wonder that science hasn't really acknowledged this system because they haven't really even acknowledged the importance of fascia so it's like why how would they know about this but what what, what this is kind of theorized to do okay is when you when you have this collagen network in the human body, in a living system, it's bound with water, it becomes electrified. And this can essentially act as an information system. So it's connecting, as I said, every cell to every cell. And that actually cells with, um, you know, it's basically a way to pass information at essentially the speed of light. So if you look at the collagen um the collagen fiber bound with water in, with what you were saying earlier erica uh, about when you have these bundles of um these bundles of collagen when you get like a knot or when you get like gummy collagen or something it's actually said to be dehydrated collagen so when collagen becomes dehydrated when you lose flow of electricity to that area then what is happening is that is no longer able to effectively bind water. It may be lacking in nutrients. It could be any reason. It may be that you don't move that area so that you're not getting flow of lymph and all of that kind of stuff. But essentially, I think it relates to this um, kind of when the system has lost its elasticity, when it starts to go brittle. And it, what's very interesting is that collagen is actually, it's piezoelectric. It's also pyroelectric. Piezoelectricity basically means that when you apply physical pressure, you can induce electrical charge. Okay. And this has to do with like um, its semiconductor structure, whereby there's like um, layers or, or lattice of, of electrons. And by pressing on it, you're kind of like dislodging them temporarily. This is producing energy. And so in the context of something like massage, or osteopathy, or chiropractic, when someone is ha has this knot of this bundled kind of collagen, this dehydrated, this kind of um, you know non-elastic, very brittle structure, say in their shoulder, by applying physical pressure, what we are actually potentially doing is we are inducing this piezoelectric effect. And actually, by doing that, potentially increasing the flow, increasing the current of electrons or protons through that area, 
and actually loosening it up, not only on a physical level, but actually on um, on the level of physics, so to speak. You know, so so it's not only that you're like actually moving it around, but you are actually changing the electrical dynamics of that kind of structure. And that is potentially allowing it to improve. And I think that, the, I mean, the late Dr. May Won Ho, you know, she did a lot of writing on the possibility that this was related to the, the efficacy of acupuncture. In that acupuncture, what you are really, um, there have been kind of models showing or demonstrating a, a very strong link between what is considered acupuncture meridians and actually collagen fibers or collagen bundles bundles of collagen fibers so you have those you have bundles kind of here there and everywhere and that they correlate closely with these acupuncture meridians and that by inserting like a needle which is basically you are applying physical pressure like that piezoelectric effect what you are potentially doing is rerouting you know electrons or protons through that structure and actually allowing the system to, to electrify once again, become dynamic, become elastic, and actually carry information as it was meant to. Is, is, that, is that what you were talking about, Erica? <laughs> <laughs> sure, exactly. You, you answered my question very thoroughly. <laughs> well, and um, just doing the research for this show, I mean, there's so much information, and it can, it can get to be a little bit overwhelming as. Uh, yeah. As you look into it and just, you know, what this means for everyday life, what this means for, um, you know, your movement, what, whatever type of daily activity you're in, whatever type of um, movement you have. And just kind of going a little bit into what you said, Elliot, about um, things like massage and whatnot. I mean, when you have like a pain in your neck and you, and you go to a, a therapist and they spend the entire time working on your legs and you have relief in your neck, even though they never even touched the neck area, is is so amazing to experience because just like you're saying, it's almost like you can feel the release of a buildup of electronic energy, like, uh, like you get tingling in your limbs and your fingers and they're only working on your calf muscles. Have you ever experienced something like that, Doug or Elliot, where, you know, you think you have a, an ailment in one place and you find that it's in a completely different part of your body. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, it, 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 I've had that kind of several times, um, and it, it seems to be, um, for instance, you know, osteopathy. The way that they would work is, it, or classical osteopathy, any, anyway. The way that it was originally taught, they were teaching that, like, if someone has a problem in their shoulder or they have a problem in their arm, like it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to focus on their arm. Actually, it could be a, an imbalance somewhere lower in the body. You may actually have to work on the foot to improve mm -hmm. the arm. And I think mm -hmm. it's a similar kind of concept is that actually if, if the fascia is dysfunctional in another place, then that may actually be causing a non-local effect in, in a completely different kind of anatomical area. But I have experienced that, yeah. Yeah, I have too. Especially um, going through um, rolfing, 
Uh, I went through the series like a number of years ago. And actually preparing for this show and stuff, I mean, I, I had known that Rolfing um, was kind of concentrating on the fascia. But I think that the the more that they've studied the fascia and the more that they've understood it, it it's actually going kind of further um, with what kind of Ida Rolf was doing back in the day, even though her technique um, seems like it was pretty pretty spot on. Um but yeah, like I've I've had that kind of thing as well. Like my entire posture changed after going through the uh, the Rolfing series, and it wasn't necessarily that my shoulders changed after I had my shoulders worked on. It it was just kind of like working on different parts of the body just changed the way the whole body was. So exactly. Well, when when you think about this stuff, or whenever I consider this kind of thing, um, it always brings me back to reading. Um, one of the the books by um i think is what was his name peter levine dr peter levine in an unspoken voice in an unspoken voice where he speaks about how the body can almost store this trauma in the fascia Mm -hmm. in this kind of system and if you don't know what fascia is then that can kind of sound a bit woo woo you know you think well that's a bit crazy and i still get my I still find it hard to get my head around how that could be the case. But actually, like, if you consider the experiments done on water molecules, such as um, by many of the researchers in Japan, where they expose water to some kind of external stimuli, and it demonstrates some kind of capacity to have a memory of the previous experience, which is absolutely bizarre. I mean, like it's water, but yeah, if water does have some kind of memory, some information system, then, um, you know, you're made up mostly of water and water is tightly bound with collagen. And it's like, okay, so if there is this kind of memory capacity and you are mostly water, then it actually would kind of make sense how past traumatic experiences perhaps um, you know, all of the stuff that he talks about in the book. So I would recommend the, the reader to, to read that because it is fascinating how that can actually be v- very much kind of stuck in this fascia, in this system. But then doing those techniques like, like we're going to be talking about, I guess, um, the, the movement and, and whatnot can actually uh, greatly help that to release it. I mean, yeah. Well, there's also, um, another connection with the um with the uh emotional um component to it because apparently um you so the pain i don't have a firm grasp on this but there is something called tgf do you know what i'm talking about erica (laughs) basically like there's this this uh signaling molecule called friday (laughs) (laughs) that's not the one tgf beta i believe that's the one it's a signaling molecule that yeah, um, yeah, yeah. is released when um, there's stress, essentially. Um, so th- there was an experiment done um, by a doctor. Sorry, I'm trying to look it up at the same time as I'm speaking about it here. But um, basically, th- what they found was that the the um, fascia did react to the release of this um, molecule when there was stress. So that the fascia actually was reacting, becoming more kind of gummy and... and um, uh, and tense as opposed to being more fluid um, when there was kind of this stress released. So you can imagine that in kind of a more chronic condition, 
um, that this, this, if you are kind of chronically exposed to the same sort of stress or some sort of emotional pattern of some kind, that it would actually have an effect in the fascia. So in a sense, that is kind of storing an emotion in your fascia. Um, and I mean, they talk about all the time with like these body works, um, this body working type stuff that you can have these emotional releases. And it might just be as simple as that, is that the, the fascia has kind of um, reacted to this kind of emotional state um, and that by releasing it, you're kind of having that kind of emotional release as well. Uh, it's, it does sound kind of woo-woo, but at the same time, I think that I yeah. do think that there's actually something to it. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it's I hard to get. I don't understand it. I, I agree completely, and I'm with Elliot. I don't understand it, yeah, but no, I, I, I can um, definitely say um, in my experience, because I am a yoga teacher and I teach uh, yoga several times a week, and I have experienced clients having emotional releases as a kind of um, after class. And, you know, I always try and keep it kind of light because uh, – you know, we all experience pain and I always use pain in the neck as a really good example. Like we use that, oh, this person is a pain in the neck or that's such a pain in the neck. And um, really having people kind of go outside of the box and be open to this concept that yes, emotional pain can be stored in your body. And if you kind of just acknowledge that it's there and you do the breathing and you relax, then I do think the body responds almost instantaneously. I really do believe that. And that may be woo-woo, you know, um, but at the same time, I've seen it happen time and again. And I've seen, as uh, Elliot was talking about Peter Levine's work uh, in a in an unspoken voice, I've seen people have muscle spasm releases where there was obviously maybe a physical trauma or emotional trauma stored in something like the leg, uh, uh, the quad muscle, which is the largest muscle in the body, and have an actual um, kind of vibrating effect. And he, he talks about that in the book, that that's the body releasing that pain. And then these people don't have that pain there anymore. That makes sense. I know I might be going off on a bit of a tangent, but no, I don't think um, so. Yeah, and and he he talks in the very beginning of the book. He talks about things like post traumatic stress disorder, and if you endure a serious injury and you let your body kind of convulse and you don't stop that convulsion, that you're less likely to have continued lifelong post traumatic stress symptoms, which to me just says so much about the fascia system, how it's all interconnected, how it's semiconductive, how it carries water, how the cells communicate. I mean, in it really, I'm so excited that people are actually starting to see the benefits of these types of things and that they're not kind of passed off as new age concepts or that's crazy. Um, because at least in the United States, like 40% of Americans suffer from back pain and they don't necessarily all have some sort of sustained injury. But I think that the, from my research for this show, that the back has the largest fascial sheets in the body. And so it makes sense that with 
modern living, that is where people would store their pain. And that's where the discomfort would come from. And then the solutions that we'll get to at the end of the show to help people with that. Yeah, it gives, it gives a lot of validity to things like yoga, things like other kinds of body work, which have previously been poo-pooed in the past by, you know, the rational scientists and the medical doctors who are all, you know, so evidence-based and all of this stuff that actually, like, um, it will get to a point where this traditional wisdom and the traditional knowledge is verified by the science um and and yeah people should be able to benefit from that well I, since well, I you brought that up maybe we should um go to that clip that we had about acupuncture the um the one from this it's a it's a video called the mysterious world under the skin and you can find it on youtube and it's actually an excellent um an excellent documentary about fascia and there is one part where they they do talk about um acupuncture uh Damien, maybe you can pull that up. I think it started at 34.15. But to what extent can traditional medicine help? Helen Langevin has studied the role fascia plays in acupuncture. My interest in connective tissue and therefore eventually fascia is uh, began when I was studying acupuncture. When you manipulate an acupuncture needle, um, you have to insert the needle and then rotate it back and forth slightly. And what happens then is that the, the, you feel something. The acupuncturist actually feels that the tissues are tightening around the needle. That's what got me interested in, well, is this important in the mechanism of acupuncture? Because that had not been researched before. Is it just the acupuncturist's subjective feeling that something is tugging at the needle when it's inserted and extracted? Or is there really a reaction in the connective tissue? Langevin wanted to find out. You first wondered, well, is that measurable? Can you measure it? You can feel it. Can you measure it? So we did experiments where we used uh, a, like a robot that inserted the needle and then rotated the needle back and forth and then pulled the needle out to measure the force that it would take to pull the needle out. We, we figured, well, if the tissues are really grabbing the needle, the force should increase uh, after you manipulate it. And we were able to demonstrate that. Every time the needle is inserted and removed, collagen coils around it like spaghetti around a fork. The sensation of a tug on the needle that therapists have long observed now has a scientific explanation. What's more, fibroblasts respond to the needle, even if they're several centimeters away. This effect is also visible in an ultrasound. But what exactly does the acupuncture needle trigger in the fascia? And could this mechanism of fibroblast activation within the fascia also explain the pain-reducing effect of acupuncture treatment? The fibroblasts that are inside the tissues, up to several centimeters away, not just only at the needle, they expand, they, they respond, it relaxes the tissue. There's another thing that happens, which we are interested in, is that it releases a, a substance called ATP. So ATP is a signaling molecule. And so the ATP uh, is, is something that we think may be possibly related to the um, analgesic effect of acupuncture. 
And so, modern research is providing evidence that... So it just made me think about that clip, Elliot, when you were mentioning that, um, you know, that Western science has to kind of catch up. Um, because here's a system of acupuncture that's been around for thousands of years. And they were kind of like, they knew that it worked. They had mapped out the, uh, the meridians, as they called them. Um, and they, they were using it quite successfully. And while all the skeptics are kind of like, acupuncture, give me a break. It's like there's no <laughs> science behind that at all. Well, there is. Like clearly they see that something is going on when you put that needle in. It's not just a matter of some kind of woo-woo faith healing. You know, this is actually like there, there is a physical aspect to this where the needle goes in, the collagen fibers actually wrap around that. And, then, you know, that's basically incorporating that needle into that communication network. Right. So anyway. Well, I think it's good that acupuncture is being, you know, um, verified by scientists like the one in the video, because it can provide uh, relief for so many people. And as we've said endlessly on this show about Western medicine and, you know, certain approaches just aren't working. And so I think, especially when it comes to pain and body issues in general, that um, it's actually being recommended more, that doctors are realizing that they can only do so much based on their really limited belief system of anatomy and healing that um, trying something different. And people are having huge results as a result, as you know, we've done a show in the past, several shows on acupuncture and interviewed some acupuncturists. And it's really quite amazing the feedback that they get from people who've been suffering for years and have uh, release first, second, third time that they have. And then not even necessarily the needles, but the uh, trigger points as well. So we were talking before the show about some possible solutions for fascia or things that are... Things that help fascia. Yes. Well, as we've alluded to a number of times, um, movement is extremely important for fascia. And I think the reasoning behind that is, it's kind of like the hydration that you were talking about, Elliot, is that... Uh, in order to keep the fascia hydrated, it needs to be moving. It needs to be, there needs to be some kind of uh, um, activity there to kind of move the water through that. And I think one of the, the things that um, they were talking about actually in that, that same documentary, um, kind of the mechanism behind rolfing is that by compressing an area quite firmly and um, kind of moving very slowly along that, what you're actually doing is pushing the water out of it, out of that area. And then when you release, the water rushes back in much like a sponge. So like if you picture like having a sponge and, uh, and you just squeeze it out completely, but then once you release it, if in water, it will suck all the water back up again. And that, that's kind of a way of kind of rehydrating the area. But um, it seems that movement and exercise and that sort of thing does the same kind of thing. It, it, it's... Um, uh, like that dynamic of bringing water into the fascia. And because hydration is so important for fascia, therefore um, movement, exercise, massage, that sort of thing can be very helpful for it. 
And also, um, in addition to rolfing, and I don't know, it may be the same thing. I don't know a lot about that type of body work, but there's a new form or, um, called myofascial release, and it's mm-hmm. like a hands-on therapy. And um, and as you're saying, Doug, it kind of uh, pressure is applied slowly in a deliberate direction to kind of melt that fascia. And um, it they they say the importance is that it's not forced but that there's a sustained gentle pressure to elongate um, and kind of manipulate it. Well, there's also like, um, you know, doing foam rolling or working with like tennis balls or something like that. Like people can do that kind of stuff on themselves as well as kind of like applying that long, slow pressure that kind of um, works that, that fascia and will kind of rehydrate it. Mm-hmm. And Erica, I mean, you're a yoga teacher. They say that stretching is really, really good for fascia as well. Yeah, there's um, there's definitely, uh, you know, kind of um, ongoing discussion. We'll just put it that way. Because back to what you were saying about movement in general. And, um, you know, a lot of times now, especially in the Western world, people think of, core power yoga or hot yoga or, you know, these kind of intensive, intense stretching um, practices where it seems to be based on the research by like Tom Myers that I mentioned earlier of anatomy trains that more um, deep, longer holds uh, what they call yin yoga. So finding your way into a shape where you feel you know, an engagement of the muscles, but it's not such a forced um, movement. It's, and then spending two to five minutes in those postures breathing. So you can kind of let go of that uh, chronic tightness. And um, it's just such a fascinating way to kind of come to a balance with this whole idea of yoga, because as I was saying, you know, these, this kind of power intensity is not necessarily, I mean, you'll benefit, but the more sustained, longer hold, relaxing, meditative aspect of this practice seems to be amazing for the fascia and, and do and causing fascial release, you know, but it's not a a hardcore invasive property to, to that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, another thing is varying what you do. So we've talked about the importance of fitness and, you know, lifting weights and even running for people that are into that. But to really um, not do things so repetitively. So for, in my experience, you know, teaching yoga, you don't want to teach the same thing every class. You really want to change it up so that you can really uh, almost get every aspect of the body and not do tons of repetitive movement. And one thing uh, that um, Mr. Myers talks about is you can really tell as body workers or uh, massage therapists um, or yoga teachers is what people do for a living based on their body structure. Mm. So we all know about the, the classic 
hunched posture of people that spend all day at a computer or terminal, as opposed to somebody who works roofing or doing construction, where they're moving their body in all these different ways all day long, and how um, these repetitive motions, and I'm just using sitting as a computer as, as, as a primary example of that, that you've got to change your movement every 16 minutes to 20 minutes because once you sit in that posture for that long, it starts to lay down that those fascial memories. So it makes it harder to um, make different movements. Does that make how sense? Lo- how long is our show been going on for now? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we need to do some stretching. <laughs> You're overdue. Yeah, we're overdue. <laughs> yeah. But um, like Elliot was mentioning before the show, there's all these different like exercise routines that are coming out that are really changing things up, you know? So it's not just going to your yoga class twice a week and doing the same sun salutations, triangle pose. It's really coming to whatever exercise you do and really changing it up very so that you, you don't have this repetitive kind of fascial binding movement happening. I don't know if I'm doing that justice. (laughs) No, I think, I think you are. And I think actually researching this show has made me think that I need to vary my exercise routine a little bit more. Um, Other than just running and lifting weights, I think I need to, Add some stretchy bits in there, and maybe uh, I don't know. There was one guy in that uh, in that documentary who it was a scientist who started jumping rope after he had done so much um, research on fascia and realizing how important movement was. He started uh, like jumping rope. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe I'll start doing that. Science what does approved. jumping rope mean? Uh, jump rope, jump rope, like jump rope. I don't know if there's another word for it. Skipping, skipping. Oh, you're. <laughs> well, oh, Doug, yes, you... skipping, yes. Yeah. <laughs> weren't you saying there's a, um, it's called MoveNat? Yeah. I had never heard of that. Yeah, that's a cool one. I, I actually went to a, a gym for a while that was a MoveNat gym. And they're all about varied movements and things like that. I mean, it's kind of similar to CrossFit, but they do a lot more movement-centered kind of stuff like um, uh you know, like crawling along the ground or like crawling on your belly or doing a crab walk or duck walk or climbing different things in different ways, swinging on things. They're just really all about kind of movement and varied movement. And, um, you know, I don't know if they know anything about fascia. It might just be from the perspective of being more kind of versatile in your movements and being uh, more flexible and strong and that sort of thing. But uh, but it was a, it was a pretty cool course to go to. But yeah, move not. I would check that out if anybody's interested. How about dancing? For sure. Almost oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Break dancing especially. Because then you're doing all the inversions and everything and swirling around, spinning. Spinning around on your head. Yeah. Well, and you know, when it comes to these kinds of applications of movement to help your fascia, um, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you do an hour every day or three times a week. It can be 10 or 15 minutes. So back to the the chair uh, kind of picture, if you will, um, even if you're sitting at a desk, which a lot of people do, 
just moving around and even taking your hands behind your seat or taking your arms out or lifting your arms above the head is going to be better than just locking yourself into this shape. Mm. And what happens is it gets harder and harder to build the muscle, to build the strength, to counterbalance that. So I'll give uh, a really good recommendation for fascia release for people that sit in chairs um, that I try and do every day, even for five or 10 minutes, is to just roll up a blanket and, and, and lay on your back and put the blanket on up your spine and it doesn't have to be a big roll. It can be, or it can be a yoga mat and just let the upper body kind of mold over that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your head is supported as well. And that is the opposite of all this forward motion. So I sometimes call this the uh, lazy teenager posture or the texting (laughs) posture, you know, but, but spending time opening the front of the spine and releasing that fascia in that supported way to counterbalance whatever repetitive movement you do every day. That's a good idea. Sitting at a desk. I'm going to try that actually, because I think that's a good idea. How long do you say to hold it for? Well, you know, you'll notice about the first minute or two, it's going to be discomforting. It because w- it's the exact opposite of what you're used to, but if you can hold it up to five minutes while doing pipe breathing or some type of deep diaphragmatic belly breathing, after about a minute or two, the fascia is going to start to release a little bit. You're going to start to feel um, a releasing, especially in the shoulders, most definitely there because we all tend to have that hunched posture because we're protecting those vital organs of our body. So it's, it's not a common place to be, to be rolling your shoulders back and opening your chest up, right? So again, it's just lay on your back. You can have your knees bent, your feet on the floor. You can put that roll all the way along your spine. Make sure that your head is supported too and just experiment with relaxing into it. Feel the sensations all in the fascia here, but also in the back. And then um, you can extend your legs after that. Yes. Yeah, so that picture that we have there, she's got the, she's got the support underneath the shoulder blades. What's really nice too. You can do that, but you can shift that mat so it's right underneath the spine, and it's and you can make the roll really big and get a way deeper opening. But that's going to be a lot, uh, very discomforting for a lot of people at first. Hmm. So, yeah, fascinating fascia. Fascinating fascia, indeed. <laughs> You're talking about something like this, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. That's exactly it. And, you know, it'll be very interesting to notice what, see how the man's hands are kind of off the floor a little bit. So that's like range of motion. They can't get their hands, their back of their hands on the floor. But with practice, and like I'm saying, you know, two to three times a week, five minutes, 10 minutes, you'll start to notice that range of motion shifts because all those, that fascia is loosening and you're breathing into it. And as Elliot was saying, you know, this idea of water and hydration, um, 
the body will start to shift and change kind of like, so I've never had rolfing done, but I've heard a lot of um, people share that it's definitely not the most enjoyable experience that it can be very intense. Yeah. And so I think there's ways to get into manipulating the fascia that it doesn't have to be as intense as something as rolfing. Again, I've never had rolfing done, but I have had what's called ashiatsu and that is where they walk on you uh, with mm. their feet. And um, back to what I was saying earlier about having pain in my neck and going to an ashiatsu therapist and they, they hold on to the ceiling and they walk on you and they put all the weight of their body on you. Wow. She worked for 45 minutes on my calf muscles and it was the most intense experience <sighs> I've ever had. And, uh, But what happened is I could feel that electrical current going from my calf muscles all the way to my neck. And when I got off the table, I had no more neck pain. So (laughs) I am a huge believer. I really am a huge believer in any sort of manipulative modality where they're moving that fascia around and it provides relief. And she knew that you... she knew you had neck pain and, and decided to work on your calves. Is that how it worked? Yeah. The, the kind of descriptor that she used, which I thought was really well, she said your, your connective tissue should be spongy, but it's not. It's more like a steak in a seal meal package where all the air has been sucked out of it. And if you were to squeeze the steak, it's really hard. Mm. <laughs> so, Yeah. So I, I feel like we, you know, we didn't even really scrape the surface on this topic as much as we could have, but I definitely recommend um, that documentary that uh, Doug mentioned, The uh, Mysterious World Under the Skin. It's all about the science that they're doing in this realm and how they're just discovering all these new things, like how acupuncture works, and then... Um, endless videos uh, about using myofascial release, the foam rollers, um, even yoga, yoga stretching. I recommend for people that have never done yoga to try uh, practice like gentle yoga or yin yoga first before you go to the hardcore power stuff. Um, because you want to be physically able to do that harder stuff and not hurt yourself. And People hurt themselves in yoga all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the move mat, the, the animal movements, um, you know, playing like a kid. Years ago, we did a show about the importance of play. And I think coming back to that idea, you know, throwing a fizz, frisbee, throwing a ball, swimming, jumping around, you know, walking barefoot, all these different things can be incorporated into your daily life, even if it's for just 10 or 15 minutes. And getting up out of your chair, if you work at a desk, every 20 minutes, even to just stand and stretch. It's a fascial rejuvenation program. (laughs) For mind, body, and spirit. (laughs) Yes. I definitely do. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I know I don't. Do- oh yeah, don't try and do that right there. <laughs> that's a, that's the beginner's program. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he's stimulating a lot of fascia and oh, yeah. I hope he's not hurting his neck. <laughs> yeah. Probably lymphatic drainage too. Yes, most definitely lymphatic drainage going on there. <laughs> Some neck breakage as well. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> uh, one other thing, yeah. Um, grounding is apparently meant to help, right? Because, because <laughs> you know, they say that the body is absorbing like electrons from the ground, right? Because there's the electrons are going from a higher density to lower density or high concentration to low concentration. And, and um, apparently, yeah, so the collagen is, is the thing which is actually. Um, which is actually kind of conducting this stuff, which is actually allowing it to flow. The fascia is, um, and that the flow of electrons through like these um, gelled up areas kind of helps to free that up. So I know that there's certain proponents who will say that like just like standing on the ground can help to free everything up, and I guess even better doing those exercises on the ground outside. You know, mm -hmm. like doing that having that role and putting it on the grass and doing it on the grass. Yeah. That'd be great. Most definitely. Yes. Yeah. And one last little thing that people can do every day that, uh, was recommended in some, I can't remember which article we were reading about it, but to set your alarm about 10 minutes before you plan on getting up and to just lay in bed until your body feels that natural inclination to stretch. Right. So we all know when we wake up in the morning, the first thing, <gasps> but sometimes it takes up to 10 minutes and to just lay there. And then all of a sudden the body will have this reaction to stretch your arms above your head and point your toes or do whatever. And to um, practice that, to, to, to be patient instead of, I know most of us, you know, we just, the alarm goes off and you just jump out of bed and you start your day. Well, this, I, I do believe it was uh, Mr. Myers that was recommending it, but to just give yourself that 10 minute window in the morning to listen to the body, do that first stretch and then get up out of bed after that. And you see dogs do it all the time. <laughs> and cats. Yeah. And cats. Yeah, I don't have any cats, but I do have dogs. And because I do teach yoga, I always watch my dogs do down dog. And I'm like, that's why they do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> they are stretching everything in their body right now. It's very fascinating. So started it feels doing, really good as well, right? So oh. I started doing uh, sun salutations as soon as I got mm -hmm. out of bed. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like a dog stretch. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty good. Downward dog in that. Yeah. And I really think it just changes the whole, your whole day, just taking those couple of minutes first thing in the morning to do that. It's almost like you were saying, Elliot, about all the different properties of fascia and all those amazing explanations that you had, but kind of sending the wiring through the body to go through the day in a different way than just like that, oh gosh, another day <laughs> kind of thing. You know what I mean? Changing your frequency for your day. I think it really does. And that's why traditionally yoga was practiced at first thing in the morning to kind of set the tone for your body for your day. So, well, I feel like we covered a lot as much as we could for this show. We do have a pet health segment. Um, 
And Damien, if you'd like to play that pet health segment. Sure. health segment of the Objective Health Program. This segment's topic is dreaming. Everyone who has a pet can say with certainty that they dream, but here's a short video that gives some information about it. And don't forget to stay until the end and watch a funny animal video. Have an awesome summer, everyone. Bye-bye. <sighs> what? Oh, oh, sorry, guys. I was having a dream about my dog. Speaking of dreams, have you ever stopped and wondered what's going on in your furry friend's head while it sleeps? Do animals have dreams the same way humans do? Let's find out on today's episode of... The hardest part about answering this question for scientists is that, well, pets can't tell us about their dreams. But basically everything we do know about whether or not animals dream comes from what we know about our own dreams. Each night, about an hour or two after you fall asleep, your eyeballs will start darting around behind your closed eyelids. This stage of your sleep cycle is called REM, or REM sleep, which stands for rapid eye movement. During this stage, your body is powered down, but your brain is as active as when you're awake. For humans, the REM stage is when dreaming begins. Many scientists have looked at the brain activity of sleeping animals to try and solve the mystery once and for all. What they found is that almost all mammals and birds have a REM stage when they sleep, and cold-blooded animals like reptiles, amphibians, and fish don't. But the research didn't stop there. Researchers at MIT put rats on a track and measured their brain activity while they moved towards food at the other end of the track. Once the same rats fell into the REM stage of sleep, they measured their brain again and saw identical patterns. This led scientists to believe that the rats were dreaming about running for food on the track. Many experts believe the same thing is true for dogs. Like rats, pups likely dream about their day-to-day -day lives and experiences. Pretty cool. Even cooler, the smaller the dog, the more it dreams. Small dogs can have dreams as often as every 10 minutes, while big dogs can have an hour or two between dreams. In another study, scientists measured the brain activity of singing birds. Once the birds fell asleep, the researchers measured again and, you guessed it, the brain activity was almost exactly the same. The experts still don't know for sure, but this has led many to believe that the birds are either dreaming about singing or they can hear their own song in their sleep. So, does your little pug muffin dream? Many experts think it's likely. So next time your dog starts running in place while it's sleeping, rest assured, she's probably dreaming about that great fuzzy tennis ball in the sky. That's a good boy, Mr. Sprinkles. I can't see the tail. <laughs> Turn the tummy down. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> You're awake! <laughs> you awake, Dex! That was funny! That was great. <laughs> that was great. You know what I did? This is hilarious. I was like stretching during the pet health segment because I was like, oh yeah, I haven't stretched in a while. And I totally like cramped up in my back. Take it slow, oh, no. peeps. Take it slow. <laughs> 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 yeah.
Well, we thank you, uh, Doug and Elliot and Damien and all of our listeners subscribe, like our show and, um, get to that fascia, you know, uh, just start noticing things, notice your everyday movements, notice, you, you know, those familiar patterns that you get stuck in and, and change it up for sure. Because it, you'll, you have to have this body your whole life. You might as well take really good care of it. Right. <laughs> so thank you all. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all again next week. Bye everybody. Have a great Bye day. everyone. Hi. Bye.